Well, as we continue this week, our sermon series that I'm calling Foundations, as we continue this sermon series, we are going to move to something that, that came up and I think every single small group that I had, which is the message, the sermon in this place. Uh, I'm going to, I don't know if you all knew this, um, but once upon a time, Joe Wick was minister here. This might be the most persistent theme in these meetings, by the way. In all the meetings I was at, there were these conversations about these preachers who had served in the past. And I, you know, I would say Joe Wick because his shadow looms heavy over this place, but I could just as easily say Jack Snellgrove and Greg Eberhardt. And for some of you all, I could say Elwin Peace. Uh, but that's fewer and fewer, I think. But what was consistent in all of these meetings is that one of the reasons, one of the, the, the foundations of this place, one of the things that makes this church what it is, is the message, the sermon that is preached. That that is something that forms a kind of cornerstone here. It is something that is valued here above many, many things. And so I wanted to take um, as I've done these last few weeks, continue this week to talk about the message. What is preached here? Because one of the things that I'm trying to get across with the sermon series is we begin with these foundations of who we are as church and we build on them. And so I can begin by saying the message is important here. But I want to build on it. What about the message? What is the potential there? What is the growth that Christ is calling us towards in this place? And when I was first uh, in conversations with this church, um, I received this, this sheet that you get in New Beginnings, the New Beginnings program you went through, that talks about the difference between a membership church and a discipleship church. And I was struck by this one comparison in these categories. It, it was in the membership church, maybe you remember this, worship satisfies me. That's how worship is defined. Worship satisfies me. And then it compares that to the discipleship church. Worship stretches me. There's this difference in what we expect from a message. I think for many of us, and I'm not going to even begin to pretend like I'm not one of those people sometimes, um, good preaching means the kind of preaching that affirms or reaffirms one's beliefs or that adds comfort or guidance in our lives. Good preaching, it's meant to satisfy us, as the line says. But the message of Jesus, if you read through scripture and the gospels, it's, it's often not very comforting. It, it's just, it, it often is challenging, it often stretches us, it often calls us into uncomfortable places. It often asks us to rethink the way we're living our lives. And this is in part because as Christians, we have this, there's this thing about our religion. We do not worship a book. We don't worship a, a, a set of doctrines or dogmas or precepts. But we worship a living person. We worship a human, yes, a human who is God in the flesh, but it is a living person. And so we, as humans, 
we can get trapped into thinking that we have all of the right answers or that we have it all figured out. And then a sermon comes around and goes, you're right, you do have it all figured out. And we feel good. But the gospel of Jesus just simply doesn't always do that for us. Sometimes it comes to us and says, actually, the thing that you think you have figured out, you don't. The thing that you think you are 100% sure that you were correct on, actually, I need you to, to rethink that just a little bit. Because the point of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus is that it challenges our lives. It is meant to be an act of God that jars us, that shakes us out of complacency. And this is in particular how the Apostle Paul understands Jesus. You see, for Paul, he writes about this figure who he has met on the road. And he says that the way in which God has chosen to be represented to us is such that through the eyes of the wisdom of the world, it's just foolishness. That if you go by what the world already knows to be true, it doesn't make any sense at all. But for Paul, that's what makes it powerful. For he writes, the foolishness, the message of the cross is foolishness. So here are scripture today from the book of, uh, book of the letter to the Corinthians. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made the foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, God decided through the foolishness of our proclamation to save those who believe. For Jews demand a sign and Greeks desire wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Consider your own call, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, things that are not, to reduce to nothing things that are, so that no one might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God in righteousness and sanctification and redemption, in order that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. May God bless this reading. So if you read through all of Paul's letters, there is this sense in each one of them that there is something about the world that is different. You, it's one of those things where he, he talks about it, but you never quite 
he almost like talks around it, and by talking around it, you get an outline of what he's talking about. There is a force or a presence that has entered history, and there is this sense that because of this event that has happened, this rupture, that what was true before just doesn't quite work anymore. And for Paul, if we read through the New Testament, we find that this, this presence begins with his own conversion. And it's a story that we've all heard before. Paul was, in his own words, blameless. Paul figured it out. In the days when he still went by the name Saul, he knew the law, was a zealot, had, knew everything about the tradition, and was so confident in his sense of the truth that he had no problem going around not just telling other people that they were doing it wrong, but actively persecuting them, actively carrying out acts of violence against those who might disagree. And then one day, as the story goes, he is, was traveling on the way to persecute more followers of this strange prophet who they were calling Jesus. He got knocked down off of his donkey. And he's confronted with this strange figure who asks him, why are you persecuting me? And Paul recognizes it as the risen Christ and Paul is blinded and he is instructed to go into town and to ask for a particular follower of Jesus. And he begins to undertake an intense study and eventually becomes an evangelist for this Jesus. And so when we read Paul, all of his letters, we have to read it through this event. Saul, the persecutor of followers of the way of Jesus, becomes blinded is confronted with this risen Christ, becomes Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. And so there is something about this risen Christ which transforms the world. But the way in which it does this is not the, way in the, the ways in which we think of the world changing. Rather, this Christ, this God who has been made flesh, enacts a saving act not by power or might or conquest or even knowledge or having the right answers or knowing better than others. Rather, this Christ enacts salvation through sacrifice, through service, through giving up of oneself. And so we don't think about this today because we have this we have now two millennia of lifting up this Christ figure, of covering it with gold and gilded edges, and with marrying him to the powers of the day. But there is something offensive about what is going on here. And we miss it because we are so used to, to Jesus being the one who is elevated and lifted up and raised up but we, we miss it. Power does not sacrifice itself. That, that, is not, that is weakness. That is the definition of weakness. It does not allow itself to die humiliated and abandoned. True power, if it is true power, pulls itself down from the cross and does not submit to it. 
Now, I know that we all know the gospel story, and we know that in Jesus that's what power looks like, but I don't think we understand just how shocking that is and how offensive it is that we would talk about power in that way. It is foolish to think that power works that way. And so for Paul, who enacts as as he goes around and acts all the traditional concepts of power, of might, of persecution, of knowledge, when he experiences this risen Christ, it is a jarring moment. It is a moment in which the very foundation of who he is and what he believes is shaken. And so it is in the confronting of this person that Paul is changed. And suddenly he is able to see the violence in which he has participated for what it is as part of the cycle of death that represents not God's will, but evil. Death. And so while before he was absolutely convinced of his thinking, he now sees clearly. Even though he's blind, he sees clearly. And everything about his life, his being, is different. And so this is the foolishness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a comfort to those who suffer. Identifying God not with those who have won victory, but rather with those who are victims. And so if we, if we really think about this Christ figure, this Jesus, this one who has come to be with us, who is God but looks nothing like God, in practice, we begin to realize that there are so much of our lives that need to be rethought, reanalyzed. Because Jesus, the crucified God, is disruptive. It's not wisdom, it's foolishness. And so we have to wonder, this 2,000 years now in which the church has been the center of, of everything, can we, can, can we find a way to consider the gospel foolish again? Do we think of it in that way? Even if we continue to think about it as a little bit strange, do we actually allow it to sink into every part of our lives, to be a part of everything we do and think and are. When we look around the world, do we see Christians valuing things like sacrifice or powerlessness or humiliation? Is that how we think about power in our world? Do we allow this foolishness to seep into everything that we are? You know, when I was uh, in divinity school, um, one of the things we read, it, it's actually, I don't think you can preach a sermon on disciples preaching without mentioning this name, um, but we had to read a bunch of Fred Craddock books. And if you've never read Fred Craddock, um, you're missing out. Or if you've never heard him preach, frankly, you're missing out. He has set the standard for preachers for the last several decades. But he, in one of his books, a book called Overhearing the Gospels, he includes an inscription at the beginning of it from the philosopher Soren Kierkegaard. And it goes like this. 
There is no lack of information in a Christian land. Something else is lacking, and it is something one person cannot communicate directly to another. So there is a lot in this idea, and it's something that Fred Craddock took very seriously in his preaching and in his teaching. And this is kind of what Kierkegaard was trying to say and what Fred Craddock took seriously. Everyone in a Christian nation, including in a church like this, who shows up to service, already has an idea of what the gospel is. You already know the answer to the story. We've heard it before, we know what it's about. And so this presents a difficulty for preachers. You wouldn't think it, right? You would think that a preacher wants a congregation full of people who already know what the story is. The challenge is how to present the gospel in such a way that those listening don't just hear what they already know, but that to present it in such a way that they hear the message of Christ, which is this foolishness, and have it transform their living. Every preacher in the world has stories, and it's not a story, it is stories, of at the end of service going back and shaking hands and somebody saying, preacher, I really appreciated when you said X, and you have to think, I didn't say X. That wasn't what the sermon was about. But it's a trick. We all come with our preconceived notions of who this Jesus is, how the story goes, and what it means. And so it is not simply good enough to present a message with just as is, because everybody already has a sense of what it is about. And so for Fred Craddock, this meant coming up with a new way of preaching. And so he was a big fan of inviting people into conversation with the text. He turned to stories that he heard in the congregation. He turned to the lives of the people and tried, instead of telling them, let me tell you what the text means, he would rather draw it out of them. Fred Craddock is famous. I've never tried this, although sometimes it feels like I'm doing it. Fred Craddock was notorious for not having conclusions to his sermons. As in, he would tell a story, and he would sit down, and you would think, well, where's the rest of it? And it was because he wanted you to continue to think about it and to chew on it and to build what you had heard. And in this way, he was trying to get around this problem that you have in a place that already knows the gospel. He wanted you to enter into conversation with the text and not just say, well, I already know what this text means. And so we have to be aware of this problem that he described. We already know what the story is. Except that the story of Jesus Christ is the story of a figure who comes and shakes the very core of what we know. Who challenges the very foundation of what we know. And so we have to learn to hear it that way. Because the message of the cross is foolishness. It jars us, it shakes us, it changes us, and it transforms us. We go through life unable to see the things that make life possible. We are asleep 
we just don't know it. And in the words of Paul elsewhere in the New Testament, it is time to wake up. And so I know that this is true of me. I will tell you, uh, bef- I, I have all kinds of excuses for why, for why following Jesus isn't practical. If you want to find people who can tell you why Jesus didn't really mean what he meant, go talk to a bunch of seminary students. Well, actually, in the Greek, the word is, we can do that all day long. I can explain to you why, why privileging the things that God privileges is not possible for me. Like if I did everything Jesus wanted me to do, like selling everything I own, or leaving my family behind, or interacting with outcasts in society, I might lose my positions. I, people might look at me funny. But that is the message. We are called not to be certain of our religious precepts or doctrines or dogmas, but rather we are called to be confident in the grace of Jesus Christ. We are called to follow the crucified Christ. And maybe more absurdly, we are called to pick up our own cross and go. We are called to announce the foolishness that is the cross. And so I will tell you, this is part of my approach to Scripture. I want to read it as though it is convicting every part of my life. I want to read it as though the most absurd parts of it are the parts that I should take the most serious. Because it is foolishness. And it is the foolishness which is transformative. And so I'm going to let you know up front, up front three months in, I don't promise that my preaching will always be familiar or comforting or orthodox, whatever that word means. But I can promise that my preaching will be from a place of my own searching for God. Because following Christ means confronting our own place in the world. It means confronting our own sense of complicity with suffering. That's what it meant for Paul on the road to Damascus. And it's the message he gives the Corinthians. To take this message of Christ and let it sink into all that we are. And this message means waking up to the ways in which even our most deeply held beliefs the things that we are most certain of keep us from following God. It means, following this foolishness means being transformed, not by what we already know to be true, but it requires us to be transformed by the living, resurrected Christ, the living God whose spirit continues among us. Amen.